0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter.
1: Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like clarification on how that is spelled, you can join us on social media, where it will be in a banner below the screen. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and if you want a, a more consistent source of connecting with us on top of Reach Radio and our radio affiliates, you can of course join us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. every single weekday. And noting all of that, if you want to engage with us, note that on those social media platforms you'll have an opportunity to send us questions live on the right-hand side of the screen or if you would prefer to email us in private and note, if you want to be anonymous, just note that in the question, we'll be happy to get to it. Also note that if time eludes us and we don't get the chance to get to your question before the broadcast concludes, email us as well. That will help us in keeping everything organized. But note that the standards for our questions are sincere Bible questions, as long as they fit those three criteria, that you want to hear the answer, that you are listening to said answer, and that the question, of course, is pretty. to the Bible in the question and the answer we'll be happy to address them taking the time for the next hour to address those questions but as always we make the habit of praying before the broadcast and inviting the Lord to speak more than we do Uh, Peter it's always a pleasure to have
2: you on would you like to pray for us sure Uh, father we love you so much we're grateful for the work that you do in our lives and the work that you're doing throughout the world Uh, through your sovereignty and your grace we ask right now we can focus in on your word and your truth that we would be able to speak in a way that honors you and the things that you've set out before us, and that by focusing on your word, Lord, everyone listening to this would be blessed and benefited in their relationship with you, God. In your name, amen.
1: That is true. Now, for those of you who were joining us last week, we started the broadcast to give time for your questions on the topic of the solas. That's, of course, Latin for only, and it's in reference to the sola scriptura, sola fide, sola deus gloria, sola... uh, Christus. Christus, thank you. And sola gratia. (laughs) And all the others. Uh, We're going to be going through those as the weeks unfold, and as we have the pleasure of co-hosting with you, but last week we focused on sola fide, that is sola faith, or by faith alone our relationship with God is established. And of course, this not being a Protestant idea, but a scriptural basis, we first started with the common objections. First of all, defining what faith is and comparing its presentation to how how uh, Holt to cult groups and how they would mischaracterize and misapply it. Now, getting more into, and we did mention these passages, but we'll take the time today to address them as well. The biblical basis for sola fide? Does the Bible, in fact, put forward this idea that it is through faith that we are given a relationship with God, or is that a new concept?
2: Uh, Yeah, no, it's actually a very old concept. In fact, it is in the Old Testament, so even uh, modern-day Orthodox Jews will claim that justification before God, the ability to be forgiven for your sins and have a right relationship with God, has always been works-based. The problem is, is that the biblical authors quote the Old Testament as a justification for their belief system. They specifically focus in on Genesis chapter 15, in which Abraham himself is declared righteous, by his faith, right? So this is before the giving of the law, this is before the Mosaic covenant, this is before circumcision, it's before any of the sacrificial systems set up by God, and Abraham still has a right relationship with God that is based solely on his faith with him. Now, this section, this passage, has been really dissected by the New Testament authors in various uh, books, especially the Book of Romans. So I'm going to go through uh, a little section, Romans 3 through Romans 4, just reading select verses, because it's always better to, when you're trying to establish a doctrine in Christianity, to not just find select verses, but to actually go through an argument, right? Because you can't—I could maybe mis, uh, misinterpret a particular verse in a wrong context, but when you see an argument, when someone's going out of their way to make an argument and then providing possible objections to that argument and then answering those possible objections to the argument, it's very hard to misinterpret that person. And that's what Paul does from the passages of Romans chapter two, actually end of Romans chapter one, all the way through Romans chapter four, he makes an argument for this idea that we must be justified by faith. So If you go through Romans, like I said, the the latter part of Romans 1 through Romans 2 and the first part of Romans 3, what Paul has established is that we are all guilty before God, that God is righteous to judge all people, whether they are Jews who have been given the law or Gentiles who have not been given the law. And he explains by what standard each person will be judged. The Jews will be judged by the law because that's what they were given. The Gentiles will be judged by what they know meaning their internal experience with the universe and the cosmos as well as their inner conscience, right? God will judge us by what we have, so therefore we are all declared guilty. And this is from Romans 3 as he's kind of summing this point up. Romans 3 verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul is setting up a very clear argument that there is no way, there is no way to get right with God based on what we do even something as glorious as a law and commandment given by God himself on Mount Sinai, on stone tablets, written with his own finger, that can't make you right with God because it declares your unrighteousness before God. God is too holy to be able to endure any amount of unholiness or depravity, and that's what we have, amounts of unholiness and depravity. We must be judged for our sin, and therefore we have to have a way to be forgiven. So then he gets into the the good part. So Romans chapter 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, very important, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 28 is giving a couple verses. You could read through them on your own time. They're all excellent. Verse 28, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law, right? So he's being very clear. It's not like, well, you believe in God, but then you also accomplish these faithful acts, and that's what makes you right with God. No, no, no. It is faith apart from deeds of the law. So this will be an answer to our Mormon and Jehovah's Witness friends who say, well, yeah, of course it's faith in God that saves us, but you also got to do these works. You have to be baptized in our church. You have to have laying on of hands ceremony. You have to be able to proselytize. You have to understand our doctrines. You have to be married for time and eternity and all on and on they go. No, Paul says that we are justified apart from any deeds that you can actually perform. It is by faith alone. Now, Romans chapter 4, he makes his point even clearer, I believe. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. This is a quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works... The wages are not accounted as grace, but as debt. So if you actually did perform some action or behavior and that's what forgave you of your sins, That wouldn't be grace anymore. That's what you're owed, right? God owes you salvation. It's not gracious of him to do it. So uh, a good metaphor would be, you know, if you work hard at your job all week and your boss gives you a paycheck, you wouldn't be like, you are so gracious and merciful. Thank you for this paycheck. No, that's what I'm owed. I labored for it. Therefore, it's owed to me. Paul's argument is that if God gives it to us graciously, we have no nothing to boast about but only to say thank you, which is why he follows it up by saying, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness, that's intrinsic, supreme happiness and beatitude, "...of the man whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered." blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. But that's not the only place that we see an argument for uh, grace through faith, is it, John? No, and in fact, it's the same case that's made over and over again in Scripture. Again, note if some
1: of these words seem, again, in a different order, but certainly making the same references and forming the same conclusions. In the book of Galatians chapter uh, 3, for example, in verse 1, not uh, so subtle, Paul is making an observation, O foolish Galatians, who Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Now, this is where we would expect him to go into, so get back to your works. If you have seen Jesus crucified, then make sure that you're saved through acting on it, right? Well, here's what verse 2 says This only I want to learn from you. He's being a little sarcastic here. Did you receive the Spirit? That's salvation, correct? by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith now this is where the cult group is distinct from the christian group If a cult group were to look at this text, obviously it's the first point that we should be obeying. It's the idea that, well, it should be by the works of the law, not the hearing of faith. But for some reason, and again, he presents this as a hypothetical question, reads us more than it we are reading it. But it goes on in verse 3 to say, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And he goes on to note, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was? was in vain. So now there's a distinction, one is of the flesh, one is of the spirit. It continues. Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you, salvation, and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, here's where the question, the hypothetical question if you will, is answered where the cult group is pushed into a corner. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles, that's Peter and I, not Jewish people, but under the Jewish covenant of salvation, by faith preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, notice Galatians chapter three, verse nine, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And then it goes on to note, if you're under the the law, you're under a curse, making the same point that the same author, by the way, was making to Romans. But if we see this trend throughout scripture, and we need to be very emphatic about this, uh, towards people who would say well you're a not interpreting that properly okay let's just start with the english language but b you're not concluding it properly if we see it repeated emphasized with the same Old Testament passages in mind, then we're not isolating passages, we're not taking them in light of our biases or our Protestant bigotry. We're making a point of emphasis that with the plain reading of the text, there's two types of people, those who are seeking salvation by the works of the law through obedience to the law, or by the hearing of faith, and only one applies the Spirit. So if we see this repeated throughout the epistles, then we have to ask ourselves the question, which side do we side on? Now obviously there will be people who are unknowingly living as if they're under the law, like, oh, I didn't get my prayer time in today, and then questioning my salvation. But there's also other groups that would be more overt about this, that would openly challenge the idea of grace through faith. And again, we would make a distinction between them and sound Christians. And what would be some examples of those groups?
2: Yeah, so as Sean said, if you go through the book of Galatians, Paul doesn't just say like, hey, we got some disagreements here. You know, you Galatians, you have this idea of salvation where you got to go under the Mosaic law, and I have this idea of salvation where we just believe in God, and it's accounted to us for righteousness. So let's agree to disagree, and hey, to err is human, and let's move on. No, he's very emphatic that these people who believe and preach these things are not saved, right? He actually calls them anathema in Galatians chapter 1, which is a very, very strong Greek word to suggest being in a state of accursement before God, right? You are separated from God, alienated from Him in every possible way. Um, By the way, the, the churches have kind of adopted that word, and now they're like, Anathema, right? It'll be
1: ironic how it's applied in a moment, but note, (laughs) the Bible uses anathema to those who would say, if you're not obeying these Jewish customs, or you're not obeying these laws, you're not saved. It's not just faith, it's also this. Now, when we obviously make a distinction between those who affirm our four non-negotiables, nature of God, nature of Christ, nature of Scripture, and the nature of salvation, that fourth one is what we're discussing, is by faith. Right. Now, if someone were to challenge that, they would then be by definition not a Christian. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people claim to be Christian and yet challenge this very thing. How did they do that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, these main denominators, the main, the main, the big ones, you say that, that, that contain the most people that preach this openly would be the Roman Catholic Church as well as the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, to be fair, the Eastern Orthodox Church comes from a line of thinking that is very different from Western thought, right? They, they do try to find harmony when it comes to argumentation as opposed to delineation, right? Meaning that as a Western person, I want to see right versus wrong. They want to see like a both and compromise. Well, maybe we could both kind of be right in some way. So their they're speaking is very wishy-washy, and it's hard to nail them down on this issue, but Roman Catholics come from the West, so they think like we do, and so they're very emphatic about what they think and what they believe. Yeah, now... The conversations, just as a quick side note, yeah,
1: yeah. you talk to those who are in the Orthodox movement, they are mostly very neutral when it right. comes to the I guess difficult issues, like right. theosis, for example. We right. would say in Christian circles, that's work salvation or sinless perfection. We challenge that. And I, I talk to a guy who was making that point. I just asked him, "What are your thoughts on this?" And right. he just says, it's a "Divine mystery, man. I don't know." Yeah. And I'm like, "Okay, well that I can. I <laughs> most guess leave say that. End. Yeah." <laughs> but funny, if on yeah. the other hand, you get to a Roman Catholic. The good news is most of them aren't even Roman Catholic. They right. just attend Mass. Right. And they would be just as much saved as you or I should they affirm these things. But right. then there's the as the comedian and uh, uh, public speaker Jim Gaffigan once put, the Shiite Catholics. Right. right? <laughs> what would they? Uh, I I guess, have to say towards us nasty Protestants.
2: Absolutely. So there's this uh, nifty little book called The Catechism of the Catholic Church. I think it was written in the last half century, so it's mm-hmm. actually pretty recent. But what it did is it compiled, because there's a lot of documents that make up what we would call Catholic doctrine. It's not just the Bible, but it's also Church councils make up Catholic doctrine, as well as the writings of the early Church Fathers and the dogmas of the Pope. So when you put these things together, there's a lot of writing. So when the Catechism of the Catholic Church came out, it was just an attempt to take all these sources that they utilized to establish their doctrine to boil it down and to put it in something easy to understand. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it delineates their faith very clearly. Now, as Sean said, many Roman Catholics, right, if you know any Catholics in your life— They have not read this, right? They they, They they couldn't spell it. Yeah, they couldn't spell it. If you read this to them, they'd be like, what? Like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. But the main issue, and this goes beyond Roman Catholics, this is even in other branches and denominations of Christendom, the main argumentation is not does faith save you? It's does faith alone save you? Now, the main thing that is added onto the work of Christ on the cross are what are called the sacraments, okay? So, this is a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, uh, this is 1131, and if you want to look that up on your own time, right, it has little verses, which kind of interesting. The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the Church, by which divine life is dispensed to us.
1: So if I'm not practicing the sacraments, I am not being dispensed or given divine life. That's right. I am being cut off, or I'm cutting myself off because of the neglect of these laws, these
2: ceremonies, from salvation itself. That's right. So it's there, Christ has purchased it for you, but unless you're doing this, you're not accessing the divine grace of Jesus Christ. So what are the sacraments? Well, uh, the sacraments are... Basically, uh, I'm sorry, there's seven of them, and... The most prominent
1: of which would probably be the the Eucharist, the continual, specifically in the context of a Roman Catholic Mass, the transubstantiation or the transforming of the communion wafers and wine into the literal body and blood of christ by which you are receiving the grace of god through this act whether it's through eating or your proper kneeling and so forth and the ceremony and stuff we're putting on a light-hearted picture but it is something they take very seriously right
2: and so there are four basic sacraments that actually effectuate salvation they so are laws
1: that you have to do in order to be
2: saved that's right baptism Confirmation or Chrismation, depending on if you're from the East or the West. Eucharist, which Sean already talked about. Penance. Those are the four that actually effectuate salvation. We'll talk more about them in the coming weeks. The Anointing of the Sick, Holy Orders, and Matrimony— are important, but they don't effectuate salvation, so we want to make a distinction there. They are sacraments of the Catholic Church, but they don't effectuate salvation, so we'll be focusing on those. And even in many Christian circles, right, many Protestant denominations, they do believe that in baptismal regeneration, that the sacrament of baptism actually effectuates salvation not us but right. there are christian groups that we would have other conversations with <laughs> but we're seeing more
1: to this list and that's the whole point that's right these are claims that are being made that unless you do this
2: that affects your salvation Absolutely. where scripture says unless you believe god right you have no salvation right so uh where can we find this in the Bible? So let's go through James chapter 2, because this will help wrap up this talk, and then, like I said, in the coming weeks, we'll talk about these specific sacraments, how we view them as Protestants, and how we should approach them. But the main biblical passage that's going to be brought up, whether by cult groups like Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, or even Muslims sometimes, uh, or uh, Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, is James chapter 2. So uh, I'm just going to read it. We're going to take a look at what he means, what he could mean, and what he probably does mean, and then we'll conclude. So James chapter 2, verse 14, "'What does it profit my brethren "'if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? "'Can faith save him? "'If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, "'and one of you says to them, "'Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, "'but you do not give them the things "'which are needed for the body, what does it profit? "'Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead.'" two ways to take what he's saying here. Either A, what he means is that if I believe in God, but do not effectuate my salvation through various sacraments and rituals, I do not receive salvation. Or B, what he means is that there is a particular type of faith, living and dead, one can save you, one can't. And he's pointing out how can you know which type of faith you have. Now, look at the metaphor that he gives. The metaphor is, I see somebody on the street who's dying of hunger, and I say, hey, be warm and filled, man. Go in peace. And he's saying, can that faith save that person? So in other words, if I believe with all my heart that by saying that to you, you're going to be saved, will that save you? No, I have to actually do something. I have to actually give you food to prove that I have faith. So in the other words, if I say, oh, I believe that Jesus is Lord, but they're like, well, man, you're sleeping with prostitutes, and, you know, you're you're kind of cheating on your taxes, and you're doing these evil things, and Jesus kind of preached against those things, man. Well, well yeah, I know those are kind of like suggestions in the Bible, but, you know, I'm not really going to do them or anything like that, you know? Thus, the illustration James also made, the demons believe and tremble. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't right. save them. That's right. So if I have an intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus probably died on the cross and rose again but that's not affecting the way I behave in any way. (laughs) That faith can't save you, because the the lack of actions
1: prove the quality of the faith. Now, would that interpretation conflict with what we read in Galatians 3, Romans 2, or any other passage that talks about faith, especially in uh, Genesis 15? No, in fact, he follows through with the quotation as if that makes sense.
2: Of Genesis 15. So uh, he's gonna quote Genesis 15. Now, look at the way he does it. It's really cool. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now notice what he says. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my
1: works, right? So showing is the demonstration. And notice he says, by,
2: not through. Right, exactly. In other words, the faith is not becoming effectual through his works, but it's being revealed through his works. Okay, so verse 19. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, oh, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? Now, that word perfect. With, not through. That's right. That word perfect doesn't mean something was lacking and then something added onto it and made it right. That word perfect means complete, rounded out. So what does he quote? Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6, same passage that Paul quotes in Galatians as well as in Romans and various other parts of the New Testament. What's he saying? How do we know that Abraham really believed? How do we know that Abraham really believed that God was going to give him a son, right? Well, we don't know that for a certainty until he offered that son up in Genesis chapter 22, right? And actually, the writer of Hebrews makes this as a point as well, right? The faith of Abraham was completed. It was fulfilled. It was shown to be actual through the offering of a son on the altar. If he wouldn't have done that, right? So if God said, This is Genesis uh, 22, for those of you listening. That's right. So if God said to Abraham in Genesis 22, offer me your son, your only son, whom you love, and he said, ah, no, I don't think so, What would that prove? It would prove that the faith was not real. He didn't really believe that God would fulfill his word to give him a son.
1: Not just a son, but that through that son all nations of the earth would be blessed. You'd be a father of many nations. Meanwhile, right. Isaac is still a bachelor. He doesn't have <laughs> any kids. So you have to ask the question, did Abraham follow through on his belief in God by saying, as the author of Hebrews says, even an expectation of him being risen from the dead? Mm-hmm. Saying, God, you've got to fulfill your promise here, this is your problem, I'm just going to obey you. Or did he, as we're noting in this hypothetical world, say, you know, I'm just going to let Isaac kind of have kids, and I'll assume this was just a bad falafel that I had (laughs) last night. That was the point.
2: Exactly. So hope that helps. Next week, like I said, we'll get into the specific sacraments. We'll touch a little bit on church history, how early church fathers interpreted these things, because again, from our perspective, the church fathers, and we've said this over and over again, they are helpful. Yeah. Right, they, they do provide us a help and a good interpretation of the Scriptures. However, they are not authoritative. right? They're helpful but not authoritative, just like any Christian or believer that writes today. right? There are many books that I could read in Christendom that would be very helpful for my faith, some not so much. right? So uh, they're helpful, but they're not authoritative. That's very important. So we'll look at them a little bit, and then we'll also look at some more from the Catechism.
1: And uh, just as a spoiler alert they're helpful to us in this case as well. So, (laughs) That being said, uh, going out to your questions, we're looking forward to engaging with you where your hearts and minds are at. This first question from Isaiah is asking for clarification on Ezekiel 33.11, which reads that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Then says, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Uh, Obviously, there's three points of application in this passage, Isaiah. Obviously, there's an immediate... There's a long-term, and then there's a definition, something we take away about the character of God. So first in the immediate, who was Ezekiel speaking to when God spoke these words through him? Because he says, thus says the Lord, not thus says Ezekiel. He makes the point in saying, God isn't interested in you suffering for your sins, punishing for your sins. In fact, all of his vested interest is preventing you from that. No, God's wrath must be justified, but that was the whole reason why they had a temple, they had a sacrificial system, and to our benefit today with the uh, bonus of hindsight, why he sent the Messiah. But if this wasn't God's priority, then he would have just left us to stew in our sin. God, and this is built up through the last 10 chapters of Ezekiel, emphasizing to them, I, I've just judged and destroyed the other nations because they were accountable to what they had. I've given you more than all of them, and yet I haven't destroyed you, Even in your time in exile, I'm preserving you. What more do I have to do to prove to you that I am in your favor here? And he goes on to describe himself I'm not the kind of being that loves it when the bad guy finally gets his at the end of the movie. My favorite kind of story is when the bad guy turns good. So if that's then the third point in this, the takeaway point in application, it's also the long-term point in application. If God has demonstrated that not just to Israel, as Ezekiel explains, but also to us, how do we prove it? Through the overall demonstration of God's character that we read in the uh, Gospel of John chapter 1, where it notes that we beheld in Jesus the glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth, that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus, and what did he do? He didn't come to this world with a sword, he came as a sacrifice, that he would do everything in his power first to save us from the wrath that we deserved before wrath was ultimately delivered. If you'd like more information on this, our Wednesday night study is going to go a bit into that information uh, discussing Revelation chapter 20. You can listen to it and I guess, later dates on our website. It'll be titled The Last Battle, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. But when we're talking about this issue of God's character and his attitude towards sin, it's not that he doesn't want to judge sin, it's that he wants to first separate the sin from from the sinner, and the only way he accomplished that was the only way that could have been accomplished. We note that through Jesus. If he's your lens and how you understand the character of God, then you're on the right track. Anything more to note on Ezekiel? No. All right, uh, going out to our email, we have a question from Adrian, who wants clarification speaking to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, on verse 18, where it says, "...no one has seen God, the only God, was the Father's side, uh, but he has made him known." a few passages being skipped there, but he wonders, that's Adrian, is this saying, no one has seen God, the Father, he notes parenthetically, the only God, Jesus, who, Jesus, is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made the Father known, him known. So, in understanding this verse correctly, does this verse confirm the deity of Jesus in the following places? No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And also, if... Jesus is at the Father's side, would that be a confirmation of Jesus' deity, being that Jesus is in heaven and able to see the Father, but the prior statement would seem more direct? Thank you, and God bless. Thank you as well, Adrian. So yeah, obviously when we're keeping track of the persons of the Trinity, we need to make sure that we don't say the Father is the Son, we say the Father and the Son are God. Those are different terms. Now, if we then clarify, if no one has seen God at any time, meaning Father, Son, and Spirit, then the disciples and Everyone who saw him post-resurrection got some splaining to do. But since John obviously was one of those who saw God, and in the same chapter, and in his letters following, says our hands have handled him, (laughs) right, then that would be a nonsense interpretation. So how should we approach this text and not make a fool of ourselves or the text?
2: Yeah, no, John 1 is really amazing, and what John is trying to answer, right, so remember, the Gospel of John is written after what we call the Synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's written actually years after them. And John is attempting to actually take and compile not only his own accounts of what he saw in Jesus' ministry from his own perspective, which is very cool, but he also is attempting to fill in some questions that may have been lacking within the Synoptic Gospels, so questions that people might have about the nature of Jesus. So one of the big questions was, did Jesus kind of come into being at the incarnation, meaning did God kind of break off a piece of himself and shove it into a baby and that's where the incarnation comes from? Or is it like the modalists believe where God kind of takes on human form and then therefore he's now relating to himself in heaven and it's really weird? Uh, What is the nature of the Son of God? How does that work? So John is attempting to answer that question by demonstrating the role of the Son of God. So it begins with. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That very first sentence actually gives a very beautiful introduction and a very specific introduction to the nature of the Son of God, that this Word of God was in existence, right? So the word that he uses for was is in the imperfect sense, meaning that the Word has preexisted eternally in communion with the Father forever. He has had a relational existence with the Father. didn't come into existence at the Incarnation. The Father didn't just break off a piece of himself. The Word is its own person, and that Word has had a relational existence with the Father forever. You're
1: noting relational. You became a father the moment your daughter and soon your son will come into the world. Mm -hmm. Jesus was always God the Son. God the Father was always God the Father. Those are relational terms. The Mm -hmm. relationship was eternally in existence, but at a point in history, Jesus became the Son, not to the Father, but revealed to us. And that's the difference.
2: That's right. And then he says, to the nature, the nature of this incarnate Word, the nature of the incarnate Word is... God, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, that's that relational context with the Father, and the Word was God, meaning that He is not lesser than the Father, He is not somehow devalued from the Father, or anything like that. Now, the the word that John uses here, the the word for word, sorry for that, uh, is the Aramaic word memra. Now, that's a very specific and important word that he could use, because the Jews at that time, you got to remember, they were dispersed by the Babylonians. And the Hebrew language was actually largely lost to the Jews at that point. So Aramaic was actually the common tongue that was spoken in Israel at the time. There were a couple of people sp- still po- uh, spoke Hebrew, but not many. And so they created a new translation in Aramaic of the Old Testament scriptures called the Targums. Now, the Targums began as a translation, but then it became more of a commentary as time went on. They wanted to preserve the Hebrew to be, stay true to their roots, but for the
1: common people, here's the passages in their interpretations by these authoritative sources. That's right. And uh, they took on traditions on their own. But on the things they got right, <laughs> it was
2: one of the terms they used to describe an interesting figure known as the angel of the Lord. That's right. So they referred to him as the member of the Lord. So there are various instances in the old testament where angels or messengers of god show up sometimes they look like just normal created angelic creatures that we would expect but every now and then you get these really interesting instances in the old testament where the angel of the lord claims deity right right? so this would be like in genesis chapter 22 which we were just referencing notice the language of that passage it says the angel of the lord is the one communicating with abraham not the lord not yahweh but the angel of the lord is communicating with yahweh and he claims that he is the one that gave Abraham the promise that he was going to have a son. And then he also claims that Abraham needs to sacrifice that son to him, right? So this is not him saying, hey, I'm just speaking on the behalf of God. He is claiming divine prerogatives and authority in Abraham's life and in the consequences of the promise of the son of Isaac. I mean, he's claiming
1: things that would only be appropriate if
2: he was God. That's right. He's saying,
1: offer your son to me. I said, but you're talking about God. Are you God or is that God? (laughs) Who are you speaking?
2: That's right. Also, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses, when he encounters the burning bush, look very closely at that passage. It's not Yahweh speaking to Moses. It's the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, communicates with Moses out of the burning bush and And says, says, as to his name, I am... That I am, right? So this is the angel, once again, claiming divine, authoritative, and not only positional, but also in his name, existence with God. Now that's blasphemous, (laughs) unless he really is God. So how do we understand this? Well, the Jews who wrote the Targum were like, well, okay, there, there must be some sort of a secondary consciousness or secondary personage that is also God, but also distinct from God, and they called this person the Memra. So whenever you see a weird instance like that in the Old Testament, which there are a ton, they would reference this being as the Memra. This person is referred to as the Memra. This also answers when John says no one has seen God at any time, you'd be like, wait, wait, wait. people saw God. Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 says that she saw God, right? It's a two-way visual. Not only you see me, I see you. That's right. And also in the book of Genesis, Jacob wrestles with god right in the book of judges the parents of samson see god and, and fact, they're freaking out about it <laughs> yeah they're like oh my gosh we saw god are we gonna die right that they really panicked about the fact that they saw god so how could john say no one has seen god at any time when there actually were a lot of people who saw god well this is what he's saying the memory of the lord the word that becomes flesh, his job in the Trinity is to make known the Father, right? So the Father dwells in an unapproachable light. This is what Paul says in First Timothy chapter 6. He dwells in unapproachable light that no one has seen or can see, but the Son makes the visage of the Father known through his being, through his personage. That's the role of the Son within the Trinity. That's what he was doing in the Old Testament. And that's what he does perfectly through the Incarnation in the New Testament. So we read John 4, God is spirit,
1: those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You can't see a spirit, something that's not physical, but right. you can see if that spirit became a man. We right. can see flesh. Right. In fact, we oftentimes are unnerved a bit when we just see flesh, but the point being made is that if Jesus revealed the Father to us, how did he do so? Through a list of commands and uh, ordinances? No. Through personally involving himself with us in a verifiable moment of history. That's the word by which we hope and the testimony by which we claim that this is the God that actually came down and revealed himself to us. Every other God can be speculated about, but only the God has revealed himself to us. He can uh, do that sort of thing. But obviously, if the Father should showed up, creation would melt. The Spirit showed up, it wouldn't make much of a difference. He's omnipresent anyway, (laughs) and he's not visible. But if the Son took on flesh, which the Spirit and the Father didn't do, that's where we make the distinction. So this is the point of application, Adrian. If in your handling of the passage, you know the person of the Trinity that was made known That can't be the Father, within and without the text. It can't be the Spirit, because same issue, but it could be the Son. So where appropriate, apply that in person, but also recognize that's why we're Trinitarians. We believe in one God. How is he revealed to us? Through the Son, not the Father or the Spirit. So note that. Uh, But Again, let us know if that clears it up. Another interesting topic. Uh, I guess I don't have to keep it anonymous. He didn't ask. Uh, Ron wants to know, as a physician— Obviously, uh, he sees a lot of patients who refuse pastoral services, and even though he's uh, the one delivering bad news. Um, He's not a chaplain, so he's strongly discouraged from sharing his faith. With patience, and has also been discouraged from sharing Jesus with the staff. Uh, and his question is: Am I fearing man in these latter days, or am I respecting authority? There was a patient who rejected my advice to receive pastoral services, but I have since learned that she has requested pastoral care. So that's that's nice. But uh, the two passages that he's keeping in mind are Romans 13, 1 and five, where he says it says that you should respect those who are in authority over you. We'll clarify that, but note other passages that would be more appropriate. There are also many passages, we'll go through a few, that also state we should share the gospel and our testimony with others. He feels like he's walking on a fine edge rather than solid ground, so being in a hospital that would restrict Christians sharing Jesus, he was obviously trained in a less secular place, but now he's working in a secular environment, so we'd like our insight. It's a difficult issue, Ron, because we're not dealing necessarily with right or wrong, it's just application. There are times where it's right to share the gospel, and there's other times where it's right to just do your job and leave someone where they're at. And as far as, again, opinionated observations, if you're in a place where you're getting those devastating diagnoses and you refuse proactively pastoral services, kind of an indication that even if a chaplain showed up, they wouldn't be listening to him anyway and say the, you know, hardened heart has reached its zenith at that point, but again, that's my speculation. I don't know the heart. That's the first issue. The second thing is, again, we're looking for application rather than definition of what's the right thing to do. Is it always right to share the gospel? Well, it's always important to be a witness of the gospel, but how that's communicated can vary. For example, in the book of First Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter speaking to wives regarding unmarried or uh, unsaved husbands, that you would win them without a word through your chaste conduct and godly living. So there is a way in which you're not verbally communicating the gospel, but are being a witness that wouldn't be condemned. If on the other hand, you're being pressured by those in legal authority, like for example in Acts chapter 4, where the apostles were told not to preach again in the name of Jesus, and they said, we can't but teach the things that we have seen and heard. They, you know, whether it's right in the sight of God or men, you be the judge, but we're just going to keep doing the right thing, even if you don't like it. The point, though, being made is neither, in more ways than one, are quite where you're at. You're considering the consequences of something that would put you in an Acts 4 situation, but you haven't been yet. And at the same time, there is an example of a First Peter 3 scenario, but that's not yours. So the question is, are you sharing the gospel by being a good doctor Absolutely. That can serve as an example. And maybe after work, you can communicate those things. That would be a minimal casualty opportunity for the gospel and note the aclu will still probably find a way to sue you but that would be suffering necessarily uh, for the gospel but if on the other hand you're put in a situation where at the expense of your work you're trying to share the gospel with somebody while you're on work hours we would say as christians that would be compromising one witness for another the efficacy of your work as opposed to your Uh, follow through as a christian not condemning the gospel i'm just noting there's a time and a place for everything note ecclesiastes but um again it's not an issue of whether what you're doing is right as being a good doctor or whether you're doing what you're doing is wrong in being you know wanting to see these people saved if they refuse it then i think you've done your due diligence because you're putting someone this is my opinion in a position where they can hear the gospel where the government has allowed it. But if, on the other hand, the government was to forbid the name of Jesus being preached in hospitals, then that'd be different. That's not your situation. If they refused the chaplain, it would be the same as if you had shared the gospel and they had said no. That's my opinion. Uh, Peter, would you have any other perspective to give on this and any other advice for Ron, my view in a nutshell is, you're doing the right thing by offering chaplaincy. I think that's the limit of what you ought to be doing in the workplace and where you are making the best witness. But
2: Yeah, Uh, no, I I essentially agree with you. I just uh, wanted to add a little bit of historical context as well. So uh, in the early Church, this was a big question, right? Uh, Once Rome started to actually really start to persecute Christians, and by the way, many Christians in the underground churches in China, as well as in places in the Middle East, they're having to answer this question as well. So I'm just going to give you a more exaggerated version of this. Like, what if, what if they are really telling you not to do it? And there's been a couple ways that Christians have looked at it. Now there's the clear wrong way to look at it, which is therefore we hide our faith right? They've told me not to share my faith. So therefore I hide it. And if someone says, Hey, are you a Christian? Like, I I wish I knew about the gospel. Like, Oh, I don't want to get sued. I'm not going to say anything. No, I'm not a Christian. You know, that's, that's obviously wrong. That's obviously denying God before men, but is it okay to kind of go out guns blazing Or is it okay to be a little bit more subtle about the way that you approach your faith? So there have been Christians throughout uh, the early church who are like, no, you got to go out guns blazing, man, right? If Rome's telling you not to share the faith, you need to be the most flamboyant, in-your-face Christian that you could possibly be. And if you get executed for that, then you get executed for that, man. That's the way you serve God. There's nothing wrong with that, right? If that's your heart and you're like, you know what? This hospital is telling me not to share my faith. I'm gonna be as blatant about it as I can. I'm gonna, you know, wear a sign since I'm a Christian. Anyone asks me, like, hey, you want prayer? Like, I'm gonna be as blatant without being rude or imposing. I'm gonna be as blatant about it as I can. If they fire me for that, Go for it, right? Think about some of our Christian brothers on YouTube who are just like, hey, if YouTube's going to censor us for saying Christian things, I'm going to say the most in-your-face Christian messages that I possibly can, and I'm going to go out in a a ball of fire, man. It's going to be awesome. If that's your attitude, more power to you. I, I think that that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Other people are like, well, let's take a more subtle approach, right? So they, they have these rules. They have these guidelines. These guidelines don't necessarily forbid me from sharing my faith, but they do make it so that I have to be a little bit more subtle about sharing my faith. So I'm not going to be in your face about it, but if I ask someone and they say, I don't want a chaplain, I'd be like, okay, well, as you're sharing with them, you say, hey, I have faith in in God, would you like me to pray for you? Not even here, but would you mind if I prayed for you uh, in private, you know, when I'm when I'm having my prayer time with the Lord? And see how they respond to it. They're like, no, don't, don't you pray for me. That's a pretty uh, good indication, right? <laughs> nah, like, I've had people literally yeah. just
1: point at you and go, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's that hard. But on the other hand, you're in a better situation. That's right. <laughs> Give the Lord an opportunity.
2: That's right. That's right. So, you know, you could make like little innocuous nods like that. I, I remember I used to teach... At a uh, at a class where I was forbidden from officially proselytizing to the students. So what I would do is I would just, uh, and interestingly, I was teaching life skills. So I would be able to go through various life skills about being a more diligent worker, being more hardworking, having patience when you have difficulties with your co-workers, things like that, dealing with different psychological difficulties and your recovery, things of that nature. And I would say like, well, hey, this is, this is how various people have looked at it. This is how some more atheistic moralists have looked at it. This is how Christian uh, theists have looked at it and I've given them both perspectives and just say hey like from my perspective I am a Christian this is how I look at it if you want to ask me more questions about that after class you are more than welcome to do so so there are ways to kind of go around strictures like that but it's kind of up to you do you want to uh, get fired but go out in a blaze of glory and that's that's on you man <laughs> that's your prerogative you could take that on the chin and you could just accept that as being your faithfulness to god or do you want to be more subtle about it and try to preserve your your job as sean said no matter how careful you are if someone wants to sue you they're going to sue you right you could you could be as like that uh teacher not not teacher sorry football coach just recently who's they tried to sue him and fire him for just praying on the fifty-yard line after a game was over, right? That's that's all he did. He wasn't like trying to proselytize anyone. He was just like, hey, I'm just going to pray after the game. Anyone wants to join me, can. They try to get uh, get him fired for that, and luckily the Supreme Court supported his case. So problem is they uh, lost a lot of time off of his work dealing with that. But nonetheless, that's right. So uh, no matter what, if you're going to try to live godly in the present age, what Paul says to us, Second Timothy, you will suffer persecution. It's just <clears throat> it's going to happen. There's going to be people either from the top or through organizations or just peers who. Are we're not going to like what you're doing, and they're going to persecute you as a result. So we have to accept that as Christians. We can't hide our faith, but the ways in which we proselytize, that's up to your conscience. You know, do you want to be more subtle or do you want to be more blatant? Yeah, wisdom isn't
1: knowing what the answer is, it's how to think through things. So when you're dealing with this, Ron, again, our advice would be in offering a chaplain within your job, you are obeying the evangelism that's permitted to you, but The spirit leads to stay flexible and note that if you're given an opportunity that may cost you something what better price to pay than for the cause of Christ? But if on the other hand you have more of an opportunity to be a witness, note that you are doing plenty by offering a chaplain. The Lord will reward you for that just as much as if you were uh, going out in a blaze of glory. It would just be a shorter story. So that being said, thank you for the question. Got a question from Dwayne who wants to know about uh, someone who's in a cult setting forced to do something that is wrong, would they be held accountable for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, obviously true. Key questions when we go into hypotheticals, because when we want to know, we want to know something that's actually the case. Uh, when it comes to the issue of circumstantial morality, though, we actually talked about this with our student ministry last Sunday. This is Proverbs 6 and verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet, verse 31, when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. So when we're in a situation where it's, you know, cool motive, but still stealing, wrong is wrong. That's hard definition, and we were talking about this with the kids. I asked them, okay, are there situations where you can do the wrong thing but for the right reasons? And they said, yes. I said, okay, can you do the right things for the wrong reasons? And they said, well, yeah, the Pharisees and stuff. So notice that it's not, oh, I did wrong for the wrong reasons, or I did right for the right reasons, there's no in-between. This haze of grayness, as the world advertised, is actually more black and white than it seems. If you did something wrong, you did something wrong, because we as Christians define wrong as not the nature of God. But your question is, will they be punished for that? Well, understand that all sin is going to be punished in one of two ways—either has been on the cross of Christ, or it will be when you give an account for what you did—good or evil. You did it, but they made me do it. Yeah, but you could have given your life. You could have stood for my virtue and said no. You could have listened to your conscience and at least just gotten out of the building. It's not going to fly. But if, on the other hand, we go, well, that's not fair. I mean, of course not. If it was fair, we'd all be in hell anyway, because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your question, though, is regarding punishment, so we'll tack it down to that. Understand that being punished for sin is different from doing something wrong. We've all done things that are wrong. We'll all continue to do things that are wrong. It's whether or not our punishment, what's rightly due for us, separation from God, will be held to our account or Christ's. And that's the good news. So uh, let me know if that's as straightforward. Anything more to add? That's good. All right, so remember, circumstantial ethics,
2: not, not helpful. Oh, real quick, one last thing, actually. In the book of Hosea, God actually delineates punishment based on people's position within the culture and society, which is really interesting. So he gives the heaviest punishment to the priests and the politicians, and then he gives the second heaviest to those in lesser authorities, like tribal leaders, elders, as well as heads of the house, meaning fathers and husbands. And then the least he gives to the slaves, the servants, as well as to the children and the women. Now, what that shows us, and you can go through his reasoning in Hosea chapter four if you want, is that sometimes if a leader has convinced somebody of a truth that's actually false, they are less culpable for their behavior than the person who did the convincing. So in an extreme example, cult mind control, cult brainwashing is a real thing, right? So people can go through instances and organizations like Scientology have really perfected this type of behavioral modification, Uh, but you can go through certain systems and it can actually change the way you think and make you more and more likely to do things. Now, what level of culpability is still left over? Because as Sean said, you still did it, right? So you still did it. Uh, Well, that's why I'm thankful I'm not the God of the universe, right? God is going to be able to deliver punishment righteously. He's going to be able to look at How much of this was your fault and how much of this was conditioning from the people who were putting authority over you? Uh, So a good example of this would be things like, um, uh, let's say, abortion today, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, even though I believe that when you have an abortion, you are clearly ending the life of a child, that's murder in most circumstances. But why I wouldn't call the majority of people who either perform or get abortions murderers is because the majority of them have been convinced that what they're doing is not murder. They're just getting rid of some sort of clump of cells or something like that. So the the major uh, blame is actually gonna go to those people who perpetuated that lie and convinced people of it. Now there are other people who are like, no, it's a child and I don't care, right? So those people, obviously they haven't been brainwashed They know what they're doing and they they don't care. They're just evil. So it it just really depends on where you fall. But I hope that helps. Yeah, note the point, though. Either we'll be punished for
1: our sins, numerous or uh, nuanced or Christ will be. That's the point of emphasis of the gospel. Uh, we got about three minutes, and uh, no more questions on our social media or email. But feel free to send them along to us, and we'll get to more of them tomorrow. Uh, we'll finish with our contradiction for today. This is apparently, again, atheist source. Uh, a contradiction in the Bible of God leading us into temptation or not. In uh, James chapter one, verses thirteen through fourteen, it apparently says that. God does not tempt anyone with evil, nor is he tempted. Is that accurate?
2: Uh, James 1.13, let no one say, God, uh, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So he does not tempt anyone. So if this was contradicted by, as they claim,
1: Matthew chapter 6, where it notes that God does lead us into temptation, well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? The problem with the problem is that it doesn't actually say that. So before we read Matthew 6, let's, and this will be verse 13, let's first give our two-step process in dealing with the accusation of a Bible contradiction. The first is, what is a contradiction? If you know that, you'll spot the accusation as misplaced. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, A does not equal non-A, that two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if Matthew 6.13 says, God leads us into temptation, and James chapter uh, 2 says that God doesn't lead us into temptation, he's not tempted nor does he tempt anybody, that would be a contradiction. God does not tempt, God does tempt. But if on the other hand, the person you're speaking to has either been misinformed through these atheist websites, or you wrote the atheist website, you gave the citation, you at least read the verse that you posted, and you know that you're lying, then either way, it's not a contradiction. So let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 6, the famous Lord's Prayer. We read... Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, do we see, God, since you're leading me into temptation, could you deliver me from the evil one? Or is Jesus speaking in the context of a prayer, don't lead me into temptation? Deliver me from the evil one, as if uh, that was kind of God's idea to begin with. Is also continuing on with that, God not wanting his kingdom to come unless we pray for it? Is God's will not going to be done unless we pray for it? Is God not going to forgive us our debts unless we pray for it? Is God not going to lead us into temptation unless we pray for it? No, of course, these are positives. So make sure that you're aware of the passages. The second step, call their bluff. Look them up, read them, and say, where is the say that God leads you into temptation? And uh, yeah, I think you'll be just fine. God bless you. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you all again next time on A Reason
0: for Hope. This is Sean Richards with Peter Martin. See ya. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time.